I think you made a good point earlier when there's no consistency in your life when you grow up in a different town every three years, you have to kind of hold on to something that is a, a constant in your life. And for me, it was sports. So it didn't matter what part of the country I was living in at the time. Every Sunday, my dad and I would watch NFL football together. And uh, we were living in near Candlestick Park during the 90s. And so my dad was a Cowboys fan. So we were living on enemy territory all through the 90s. But some of those NFC Championship games, the Niners and Cowboys stuck with me. And then uh, basketball, watching the Chicago Bulls, the Orlando Magic of the yeah. 90s. Um, it was just something I could always tune into and feel a sense of belonging. It just, it was a bonding time for me and my dad. And, you know, he kind of, I guess, raised me like a, a, a son in a way because uh, I was this, the last kid and I was, he only had daughters, but I guess he wanted to share his love of sports with somebody. So I was coined the, the son he never had, I guess. <laughs> Everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. But tonight we're jumping off the Bruce Springsteen train, though he will come up because he normally does. And we're getting on the ticket train. That's right. For those of you who've been listening for a long time, you know I am a massive P1, a fan of Sports Radio 1310, the ticket here in Dallas. And we've got a filmmaker joining us. Crystal Vasquez had just released a documentary about the founder of the ticket. And the documentary is much, much more than that. And I reached out to her and she was nice enough to join me. So Crystal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Uh, did you get a chance to watch the documentary? I did. I was there the second night of the Granada. Uh, oh, okay. The, the night Grego was there. Um, okay. And by the way, so I have a lot of people and that have reached out to me who have had not seen it yet and say, Hey, I hear a rumor at the end of the film, you have blank meeting blank. And I've been, I'm not spoiling it for you guys. Okay. So because, and, and guys, if you haven't seen the documentary, well, first off, uh, you should, but if you haven't skip ahead for about 10 seconds, that scene at the end was so unexpected and so masterfully uh, filmed because you actually think it's two different screens. Like, oh, the special effects. And to see that ending was just something really special. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't realize that people thought that Mike and Greg weren't in, together in the same room. But then when they shake hands, it's kind of obvious that, yeah, they're actually shaking hands. But I had a couple of people actually email me and ask, hey, are those two guys really together? Or did you special effects that? I was like, well, I don't even know how to use special effects. So yeah, the, the handshake really went down, so. Well, what's funny, right, Crystal, is like, okay, obviously you have a misperception of the budget of this documentary, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm still in debt, actually. So yeah, there are absolutely no special effects in it. <laughs> yeah, uh, so anyway, uh, tell us a little about yourself for my uh, listeners. Oh, gosh. We don't want to bore them to death. Oh, um, give us your elevator pitch. Come on, Crystal. Well, I don't really have one. I mean, I went to college at North Texas, University of North Texas, uh, studied broadcast journalism, went into the television news route, and I found out fairly quickly that's not really for me. And um, so after I got out of television, I worked in Amarillo on my first TV gig over at the ABC affiliate. It's now a Sinclair broadcast station, so... Thankfully, I got out in time. And then I got hired over at Fox 4 in Dallas, uh, worked there, left the television realm, went into radio, um, tried to find my footing there. But as you're very well aware of being a huge P1 and a ticket fan, those jobs don't come open very often. So I basically left the ticket after my fill-in traffic position and was basically unemployed. I guess you can say I still am un unemployed. <laughs> Um, but I guess I'm considered now an independent filmmaker, so that's where it stands now. But 
Um, yeah, I grew up around this area. Uh, my dad was in the Navy, so we lived around the country, but we settled here in the late 90s, and I've been in Dallas, Fort Worth ever since. So we have that in common. My dad was a military guy, and uh, he was in the Army, and so I definitely, um, I, I counted up once, Crystal. I went to 12 different schools from kindergarten to eighth grade. Oh, like, wow. You know, well, my mom was one of those, like, if dad got stationed, she immediately went home to Louisiana to be with her parents. And so we moved around a lot. So uh, where, where about were you guys stationed at? So uh, my dad, uh, I was born in Leesville, Louisiana. So he was, um, he was originally stationed in Fort Polk which I did not realize until recently. Oh, Fort Polk was named after Confederate General? I had no idea what it was named after. It was just Fort Polk. Um, is, it, is it still named that? Yes, it is. They haven't changed it yet. Uh, then um, my dad um, got stationed in Fort Knox, where the gold vault is in Fort Knox in Radcliffe, Kentucky. And uh, he was originally from Ohio, so he loved that part of the country. Um, he hated Louisiana. He said you had to have gills to live in Louisiana because it was so humid. Uh, and so we spent um, a lot of time in there in the Fort Knox area, uh, Elizabethtown, Radcliffe. Um, Dad was stationed in Germany. We spent a year in Germany. Um, so, and then my mom and dad divorced and she moved back to Louisiana. Um, and then he stayed uh, for the longest time, he he just made his home in Radcliffe, Kentucky. So, so Germany, Louisiana, Kentucky were the big bases I went to. How about you? Oh wow! So I never I never went overseas, but my dad, when he was a kid, he was in Stuttgart, Germany, I think, um, mm. with his dad in the army. But when my dad's Navy career, we were in um, Long Beach, California, Rhode Island, Fresno, California, Mountain View, California, and then Fort Worth. Very nice. That's good. It. I feel like a Sesame Street rhyme. Which which one of these is not like the other? One of these doesn't belong, right? You name all these coastal towns, and then Fort Worth. <laughs> yeah, which which I loved Mountain View, and I loved. Well, actually, I loved all of them. Rhode Island's very pretty, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of there's a lot of history there. Just to go there, and the buildings have been there forever. Um, but yeah, it's. Fort Worth was one of my favorite towns, but I, I love Fort Worth, but I think that's probably one thing maybe we share in common is having to get up and move every two or three years. It builds your, your confidence and you have to always be out of your comfort zone. So in terms of being a reporter, or, you know, asking people questions, I've always had to talk to different people and make new friends. So it's, it's an easy thing for me to do is go talk to people. And I, I bet you could, echo that too it's you're not you're probably not afraid to go into a room and not know anyone crystal you are so correct in fact um i i, I you know used to joke that one of the reasons I, I loved comic books so much is because they were consistent right no matter where we lived i could usually find a superman or a batman or a spider-man comic book um and yes uh, they will uh, my friends still mock me like, I'm the guy that if we're in the elevator, I'm like, oh, hey, how are you guys doing? You know, and especially like you're on vacation, like, oh, where are you guys from? And, you know, and I'm that guy, like, that just like, shut up, shut up, you know, but it just, um, you're, every year you go to a new school in a lot of ways, and, and you've, you know, I, I was fascinated, Crystal, when I, when I did settle, my, after my parents' divorce, we moved to a small company, small town called Moss Bluff, Louisiana, just out of Lake Charles. And so I'm starting high school in the ninth grade, and there are people that have known the same kids since the first grade, right? I mean, they were talking about having elementary skids and, and crushes and, and things, and I'm just like, I, I can't even remember who my friends were in the first or second grade. Yeah, that's, I think my oldest friend dates back to maybe first grade. And ironically, her dad and my dad were both military. So we actually got stationed in Fort Worth together. But other than that, she's my only friend I've had for probably more than 20 years. And, and there is that, there is some of those that um, I know 
my dad, bless you, my dad did like, you know, you had the connections, right? And that, that you kind of learned other service brats and other friends and it was good. Well, as you guys are moving around, I always like to start, uh, was your family musical? Did they like listening to a lot of music? Yeah, my dad was a big music guy. He, um, of course, had his eight tracks and vinyl records. He lugged around from state to state, and yeah. um, he was he was a big Elvis fan. So he we listened to a lot of Elvis gospel growing up, um, and then really anything else he had on vinyl. So he listened to like a lot of Black Sabbath, which goes very well with Elvis gospel. Yes, I was um, going to say that. Talk about a mixed math. Um, I do. Yeah. I, I want to interrupt you just because I think you'll get a kick out of this. Um, my dad was not an Elvis fan. And I remember once him telling the story, he wanted to go find a copy of an album of Peace in the Valley, not sung by G.D. Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> that song played at my grandpa's funeral. Right. Peace in the Valley. Yeah. He was a big gospel fan. So. Mm -hmm. Really, anything he had uh, on vinyl. I think he had like a lot of Michael Jackson too. Mm -hmm. um, it's just you know Zeppelin, The yeah. Doors, all that '60s music. And so, Crystal, did you embrace that? Did you rebel, or kind of a little of both? Oh no, I liked it. Um, mm -hmm. Elvis is probably my favorite, I guess, artist or whatever, mm -hmm. musician or singer. Yeah. Um, he's my all-time favorite, but I also like the Beatles too, which they say you can either be a Beatles fan or an Elvis fan, and I'm a big fan of both catalogs. Oh, okay. The, um, and just you, was, is it because it reminds you of your father for Elvis, or just you like the music? I like the music. I mean, yeah. I guess, I guess, yeah, you grow up and your parents play music and you find it, you know, appalling or boring, but I think yeah. he had a pretty good taste in music. Okay, very nice. Good. Um, you know, as we are prone to do on this, you know, we're going to throw in some Springsteen uh, trivia. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the song Fire that the Pointer Sisters recorded, um, he originally wrote for Elvis. Uh, that's Bruce absolutely wrote it, and he wanted because he felt like Elvis needed a hit, and the rumor the story and i think it's legend now is that it was actually on the way to elvis in 77 when elvis died oh are you telling me elvis never wrote his music <laughs> <laughs> uh so by the way the great mac davis just passed away who wrote some of elvis's greatest stuff yeah so, he did him and uh, scotty moore were two of my favorites oh yeah uh, no i we um i will not bore my audience but i'll make a note to edit this out because they don't want to hear this story again but you know hey this is for you and i um so uh my son's uh, now 31 big p1 as well and uh love the film by the way he was excited we were going to get to talk uh he went Aww. to granada with me um thank thank you for attending by the way thank you oh, so much it was so much fun and um, we, we used to do the story when he was younger, uh, we would listen to Kid Craddock in the morning and the hard line on the afternoon. That's how we divided, you know, in the car. Um, and then later as he became more and more sports conscious, you know, less Kid Craddock and more the musers. But anyway, um, those are, those are, that's a dichotomy if I've ever heard one. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, he would, we would listen to Kid Craddock, you know, because right, you, you, you argue with your parents, right, about the music. And so that was a compromise that I, w I would listen to Kid Craddock with him in the morning. And then we would listen to the hard line on the way home. And, and he got to enjoy both, like, you know, spin and spare and all the different things. But um, he was about 10 years old and we went on a vacation and we went to Memphis and toured Graceland. And that was it, Crystal, once he toured Graceland, and once he learned that you couldn't go upstairs because, you know, the second floor, he became obsessed that a 10-year-old, what, what's up there? Why can't I go? And he, to this day, adores Elvis. I mean, he, he, he has hip-hop, and, and he goes through, you know, he'll, you know, go through, um, you know, different, he went to school at um, Stephen F. Austin, so he got a lot of country music, you know, in college, but Elvis stays in the mix. Yeah, well, Elvis was uh, 
very much country, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is there, is there any specific Elvis or Beatles songs that are your favorites? Oh my goodness. There's a lot. Um, I like the white album a lot. Okay. I like black, blackbird. And then I like a lot of Lennon's, um, kind of, so I don't know if you'd call it solo stuff, but like imagine that's the first song I ever learned on the guitar. Um, and I have a tattoo that says imagine because it's the first song I, I'm sorry, I didn't learn it on the guitar. I learned it on the piano. Okay. And unbeknownst to me, I was actually playing the chord, one chord of it wrong for like 15 years. And so I was in a, <laughs> I was in a recording studio one time just playing with one of my friends uh, who since passed away. But he said, hey, you realize you're playing that chord wrong? I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> so oh, I was now playing you the song me. wrong for, for 15 years. But anyone out there that wants to learn how to play the piano, start with the Beatles because everything's in the key of C and it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's easy, but anything in the key of C is a little easier to master on the piano. Ah, very nice. The um, that that's very cool. Uh, so, did you did you continue? I mean, you you mentioned Elvis and you mentioned the Beatles. Did you, as you're going to school uh, in North Texas, that's such a big music school did did you expand anything for local musicians or did you is sample any of that yeah I mean I guess being a product of Denton you obviously learn who Nora Jones is uh her dad Robbie Shankar uh, who jammed with George Harrison and the Beatles quite a bit um but I took music classes at North Texas so I learned a lot of classical music okay uh, different eras of the classical scene and then I was by no means talented enough to even step foot in the one o'clock jazz band but um, when I had music classes they'd always be warming up and they would do like the Simpson song yeah. and they would do a bunch of fun pop songs or cartoon songs but it yeah. would sound so masterful because they're the one o'clock jazz band yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, yeah I guess I was more introduced to jazz through the North Texas music scene than any other type of music yeah, a brave combo, obviously from Denton, uh, the rock yeah, and polka band. So yeah, I got to see them at a my a good family friend of mine um, had his I think fiftieth or sixtieth birthday party, and Brave Combo showed up, and they were fun polka. Yeah, uh, they uh, I've talked about them a couple of times. Uh, they are they are just when you hear about it, you think it's oh they're kind of a gag band, but they are just so talented musically. And they just are so much fun. You're, you're right. They just, they are a perfect party band. Yeah, they were, they were fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you've kind of shared a little bit. You've gone through, um, why do you think, why, do, why, were you dri- why were you driven to sports as you were going to doing broadcasting, both in TV and radio? What, what about sports spoke to you? I think you made a good point earlier when there's no consistency in your life when you grow up in a different town every three years, you have to kind of hold on to something that is a, a constant in your life. And for me, it was sports. So it didn't matter what part of the country I was living in at the time. Every Sunday, my dad and I would watch NFL football together. And uh, we were living in near Candlestick Park during the 90s. And so my dad was a Cowboys fan. So we were living on enemy territory all through the 90s but some of those NFC championship games the Niners and Cowboys stuck with me and then uh, basketball watching the Chicago Bulls the Orlando Magic of the yeah. 90s um, it was just something I could always tune into and feel a sense of belonging because sure. it just it was a bonding time for me and my dad and um, you know he kind of I guess raised me like a, a, a son in a way because uh, I was this, the last kid and I was, he only had daughters, but I guess he wanted to share his love of sports with somebody. So I was coined the the son he never had, I guess. Okay. Well, um, as I mentioned before, you know, my son, Chris, uh, was born in 89. So he is quick to tell you, uh, he was born like 10 days before Jerry bought the team. So he mm. he tells everyone I was a Landry baby. I, I was born during the Landry era. Uh, so uh, and yeah, he um, you know it, growing up in Texas, it is hard for it not to be in your DNA, um, and it's just so prevalent. Um, when you um, are you you still remain passionate about sports, correct? 
Yeah, it's, I think it's, I can enjoy it more now that I don't have to cover it. Yes. Um, especially in TV, local TV, you have to be well-rounded on all aspects of sports. So, yeah. um, you know, I had to learn more about baseball. Admittingly, I'm not a big baseball fan. Um, mm -hmm. Even though I just did a documentary on the biggest baseball guy I know. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, I had to learn more about baseball, um, the college scene, the high school scene. Uh, golf, women's volleyball. I mean, you have to just know so much about so many different kinds of sports and teams and uh, PGA players. So yeah. my days were just consumed with keeping up with it. But now that I'm out of the scene, I can actually sit and enjoy a game and not have to cover it. Or, yeah. you know, I just have a different perspective on it now because it was so enjoyable to do it and then getting involved in it, working it every day. It's a grind. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it, but I guess I enjoy it more as a spectator rather than a member of the media. You know, Crystal, one of the things um, I, I'm a big, you know, I, I will like everyone else, I'll go into blogs and um, I'll hear podcasts and I've had different show runners on for TV shows will say like, if they are someone who does produces a drama, they will say they can't watch a drama on TV because they can't turn their brain off. They're like, oh, they kind of, I wouldn't have done my act break there. I would have done my act break here. And oh, I think that they ended, that was kind of a, a weak way to go into the commercial break. And oh, I see the structure, what they're trying to do here. And same thing, I, you'll hear showrunners of comedians, you know, comedies going, eh, I wouldn't have worked that joke. And they can't turn their brain off from, you know, just to be an audience member. And so I think that's kind of neat that as you've transitioned from being a reporter, you're able to go back and enjoy it. Yeah. And I do the same thing when I watch local news and, and in Dallas, we're blessed because we do have such uh, solid tenured people that produce anchor report on the news here. So it's usually yeah. a really polished product, but if I ever go on vacation and I'm in a smaller market, I'll turn it on and I'll say, wow, that was interesting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I bet. You know, that sounds I, I, not to be judgmental, but we get, we're a little spoiled to be living in Dallas, Fort Worth and having some of the best local news people in the game. But if you travel outside of Dallas, you, you'll see all kinds of stuff on local news, not in a top market. And, you know, I guess it keeps you on your toes, but I'm, I'm glad I can watch the news and, and not critique it because they're a lot better than I probably was at my job. <laughs> Yeah. So let's transition into um, what have you always wanted to be a filmmaker or how did this thing happen? Yeah. <laughs> how did this thing happen? Um, yeah. I've always liked documentaries. Um, okay. Just be, the storytelling aspect of it. And I guess when I worked in the news, you are a storyteller, but you're confined to having 60 seconds, 90 seconds, maybe two minutes if you're lucky to tell a story. Right. So um, I, I guess I still can't consider myself a filmmaker, even though I have one on my resume. But to me, it was just telling an elaborate story. And um, I don't know if filmmaker is something I'm even comfortable saying, but I guess I'm just can always consider myself a storyteller. So okay. if I had the opportunity to tell someone stories I did with Mike Reiner, um, I was going to jump all over it. Yeah. So um, talk about, um, and for those of you who are listening um, outside the DFW area, uh, Mike Reiner is um, a local sports uh, both, you know, just radio icon, basically it is. He has been, and, and the documentary covers his long history on DFW radio. And uh, he made the decision to retire at the end of last year. And, um, and kind of to everyone's surprise, this was, uh, he had not made a big, he did not do a victory lap. He just, when everyone else was coming back from vacation, um, he posted a d documentary and said, We'll see ya. Uh, so when you saw that, is that when you first thought about, hey, I bet there's a story there. I'd like to tell it. Or what made you think about this? Well, I actually emailed Reiner last summer. It was July or August of 2019. And I had conceived the idea to do a documentary on him, if he would allow. 
and he was very receptive. He said, yeah, let's meet and I'd love to help you out. You know, it was more like him doing me a favor, which yeah. it, it totally was. And so I got kind of nervous and dropped the ball and never followed up with him. Mm-hmm. And so when he retired, I said, oh, goodness, well, now he's going to have more time on his hands to commit to me badgering him about the film or the documentary. Yeah. Um, so in February, I kind of reengaged my connection with him and we met. And then March 25th of 2020 was when we started filming it. But, you know, I don't think his retirement really was the breaking point for me to do it or not to do it. Because again, I had conceived the idea to do it last summer, but I just didn't feel confident enough that it was something I can do, which that was a lesson learned, you know, anything you think you can do, if you put in the work and you have the talents, you can definitely do it. I, and we're going to pursue that a little bit more Crystal, but why, what about Mike's uh, career and life made you think this would be a good story? I mean, the guy's born and raised in Dallas and, you know, he was with the rock and roll station in the seventies and eighties. That was the most popular rock and roll station here in Dallas, Fort Worth, KZEW. And that's where he got his footing. But um, for him to be able to pivot from a producer role to then creating the most iconic radio station, regardless of format in this market, I thought was interesting. And I hadn't seen anyone tell the story, especially through the visual and through the medium that I had through my documentary about Mike. So I thought it was a story that needed to be told. And I felt if I didn't pursue it back in the early part of 2020, someone else would beat me to it. And um, I thought it was just, again, a story that needed to be shared and told um, from his birth in Dallas to what he listened to on the radio and his radio influences and just covering his entire his entire existence i guess not just the ticket but it dates back to his childhood in oak cliff and where he went to school at and then of course kzew the zoo was a major influence on him and i know you do a music podcast but you know music is very very important to him and it's important to me so i think we shared that common bond between our love for sports and our admiration for music. Yeah. You know what I, I think it's interesting is um, I often, uh, I tell the story when five years ago, when I started the podcast um, there, I was looking for the, um, I was looking for a Springsteen themed podcast and um, Lynette Carolla, who is Adam Carolla's wife, had had like four or five episodes where she had talked to friends of hers or Adams who were Springsteen fans. And I was fascinated by them hearing the story. Here are people that, uh, you know, Phil Rosenthal, who did created Everyone Loves Raymond, but they didn't talk about the show. They talked about just him going to Springsteen shows and how much he loves Bruce's music. And I, I make the joke often, well, in the spirit of lighting a candle instead of cursing the darkness, I'm like, okay, well, if I want a Springsteen podcast, why don't I make a Springsteen podcast and see what happens? Um, so I hear that a little bit of you, like, I think someone should tell the story. Um, and if, if not, you know, why not me? And so I, I think that's really courageous of you. Um, I also love the idea that, you know, this is a cliche, right? Like the, the, the longest journey starts with the first step. And sometimes it's really hard to take that first step. And I, I appreciate your honesty of you sitting there going, and eh, I kind of just let it slide because, you know, why am I doing this? Am I, I'm not a filmmaker. I, you know, what, what do you think I could do this? Um, I think it's great that you ended up going past your fears and pursuing this. Yeah, well, I have the same sentiments for you and your podcast, Five Years Running. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's, you know, I'm a young woman in Dallas. And again, I hadn't made a film before. So it kind of, I guess it kind of mimics Mike's idea of doing a startup, you know, a a sports talk radio startup when there was probably at least 20 other people in this town that she probably should have been the first to do a 24 hour sports talk radio station. And Reiner was the first one. And with my documentary, there's probably 
200 people more qualified to do this documentary, mm -hmm. but I was the one that took that, that leap of faith and, and did it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's if you, if you want to do something and you have the talents and the skill set to do it, why not? And when you, you're, what, what did you know what story you wanted to tell? Like, did you have in your mind, okay, I know I want to talk about the zoo. I know I want to talk about the early days of the ticket. I know I want to talk about blank, blank, black. Did you, did you have in your mind and did you kind of a uh, outline of what you wanted to cover? Yeah, definitely. I didn't go in blind. So a couple days before we started shooting, I actually told Reiner to drive me around town, uh, show me his old stomping grounds and just the nostalgia that he had doing that kind of lit a fire within me because that's something that he doesn't routinely do and nothing that's really been shared out there and the depth that my documentary went into. And a lot of people know Reiner from the ticket because it dates back 26 years ago, but some of the newer P1s, I guess, they're, they're, they had never had the chance to listen to the zoo because this was well before their time. Yes. Um, so yes. That, that, I definitely wanted to cover that. And then kind of dive more into Mike's radio influences because anyone who's great at a craft, they, have to, they had to have studied someone before them. And for me to talk to Mike about his early radio influences were really good. Um, and then, of course, I guess the theme of my documentary was developed after I spent more time with Mike because it was really imperative for him to get the, the theme out that, you know, he, it's, well, it's called Not in This Town, The Improbable Rise of the Old Gray Wolf, and Not in This Town is symbolic in two different ways. First, there wasn't supposed to be a 24-hour sports talk radio station in this town because they already had KRLD and KLIF covering sports, but nothing was 24 hours. And no one thought that it would survive in this market. Um, even when I talked to Randy Galloway, he mentioned he tried to get a 24 hour sports talk radio station up and going through ABC. And they told him that it won't work, you can't sell it. So not in this town in that regard. And then not in this town in the fact that Reiner is adamant that no one thought that he would be the one to do it. So I guess that, that theme of the documentary was established after I spent more time with him. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that he was able to share that because it may not be something that a lot of people were aware of was just the uphill battle and the difficulties he had in getting the startup going. Yeah, I remember, I think it was uh, Norm who was at the time doing KLAF. And the idea was you, you, if you're going to have a 24 hour sports station, you, you've got to have one or two uh, major league franchisees to, to, to fill air, airspace, right? Like you need to have the, you need to have a major league baseball team. Cause that would, that would mean every night you've, you've got those three or four hours filmed plus, you know, pregame and postgame or, you know, um, or a basketball uh, would do that. Um, and, you know, the ticket has had did they had a few years where they had the Cowboys and they currently have the stars, but they, they are not relied on the franchise. And so I think that's, um, I do think that's surprising that. Yeah. And then a little that, known fact, I think is the early years of the ticket, I think 94, 95 Spence Kendrick, the co-founder of the ticket, he told me that um, the ticket actually broadcast, they couldn't acquire the rights to the Cowboys because they were already uh, on another station and they couldn't afford them. But the ticket yeah. was actually broadcasting 49er games. Oh, how fun. Yeah. So they had a signal, they had a signal in Houston, 13, 10, I guess they had a signal in Houston and of course in Dallas, but they were, they went against the grain and caused some controversy by airing 49er games in the Cowboys, in a Cowboys town. That's pretty funny. Um, the other thing I, I did want to point to go back to, you mentioned his influence. Um, there's a lot I love in the film, but I am fascinated by, because I moved to Dallas in 86, 87. So KLIF was a talk show. I, I, I discovered Norm. I discovered, you know, David Gold and Kevin McCartney. And, and you know, but KLIF was always 
a talk station. And then when I hear that back in the day, they were the, the, the premier rock and roll station in the DFW area, you know, on AM is fascinating to me. Yeah, and KLAF was a Gordon McClendon-owned radio station, and through the 40s and 50s and 60s, he kind of coined the top 40. So he was a pioneer, a massive, massive radio player, and Gordon McClendon owned KLAF, and that's where Ron Chapman, the legendary Ron Chapman, I guess cut his teeth, was at KLAF, and that was Reiner's number one radio station he would tune into every night on his transistor radio and just absorbed what he was hearing coming out of the airwaves. And yeah, KLIF was the, was the big player here in Dallas for many years. Yeah. And I just love that influence because um, I graduated high school in 1977 crystal. And so I remember having a clock radio and, you know, that was on the side of my bed and listening to music and that, you know, not, forget a nice stereo, right? Just, just listening to top 40, uh, whether it's Casey Kasem or just the local AM stations playing all these songs. So hearing him talk about that um, really brought back a lot of happy memories for me. I'm not quite as old as, as Mike, but we are within <laughs> You know, spinning. No, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and so I thought that was a really um, interesting point about it. Um, what were what were some of the challenges you had as you kind of build this documentary together? Um, I mean, I shot the entire thing during COVID, so we were in the okay. Midst of there the you go. Yes. Yeah, that was. I guess that was a challenge, um, but thankfully, I was able to book the interviews that I did and we were very responsible, you know, we practiced yeah. social distancing, but unfortunately due to COVID, there were a couple interviews that I uh, were trying to obtain that, you know, reasonably these people didn't feel comfortable meeting in a pandemic. Uh, sure. Troy Aikman, um, Gordon Keith, they, they were kind enough to engage with me, but it never came to fruition because of a pandemic. But the people I got, I felt really contributed to telling Mike's story. So I was thankful for that. But that was probably the biggest hurdle was just the, the COVID thing. You know, I was scheduled to fly out to Los Angeles and interview Kurt Menefee and something came up with that, I think, through the COVID issue. So yeah, those were the, those were the big challenges. Did, I was going to ask you, because after the film and, you know, I'm, I'm talking to my buddies, I went and we're like, wow, I mean, how did she pick which you know, ticket host did she interview and how did she pick what's going on? And so that's interesting because you would have thought Gordon would have had that and you wanted him. Were Yeah, I did want Gordon. And he actually reached out to me like two weeks before the premiere and said, hey, do you still need me? I was like, well, if you would have asked me a month ago, yes, but yeah. I already had the documentary in the can. Um, but I think, you know, obviously I, Gordon would have been huge to have in it just because He's a flagship personality, and his name is mentioned in the documentary yes. quite a few times. But, you know, the show goes on. You just have to make the best of it. And I'm thankful George Dunham talked to me because someone from the Musers was represented. Yes. And, you know, one of the, the original members of the ticket. So to get him, definitely to get Grego was huge. And then to get Corby, just because Corby sat, you know, across from Mike for many years and yeah. So I feel like I had I had the musers and the hardline pretty accurately represented represented. So I I didn't feel like I was missing out on too much. But Gordon would have been Gordon Troikman and Kurt Menefee would have been awesome to get. But yeah, it I, is I, what it is. Absolutely, and that's um, that, that's one of the things. Um, art is never finished; just abandoned is what right. <laughs> the when you 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 talked about in the Q and A about how and and for those of you the for you those who are outside of the dfw area um once again i urge you to watch the documentary but um the hard line was the afternoon drive show for years here in dallas and they dominated the ratings for um um a the the demographic they want which are males um, and I never can remember the years, but um, like 18 to 45 or something like that. And uh, they dominated and uh, it was 
you know, Mike Reiner and Greg Williams and many years ago now, but uh, Greg Williams ended up getting fired. It was a very nasty divorce. Um, And the two um, on air seemed to be best buddies, but it was pretty quickly they weren't. And there was, if you ask anyone, you know, uh, Grego will never set foot on the ticket again, and he and Reiner will never speak. And your film, like, so you talked about in the QA, so if you don't mind, talk about your thoughts about, okay, I got to get Grego in this thing. Yeah, I mean, you can't tell, you can't tell the hard line without having Greg in it, and so... Um, he was, I think the third interview I booked, obviously I got Reiner first and then I went and shot Dale Hansen, Brad Sham, and then Grego, I think was the fourth person. I shot him and Brad Sham on the same day, but, um, I mean, he was someone that had to, had to be in it. So I basically just got his phone number from a mutual friend and texted Greg and asked if he would be a part of it. And he was more than enthusiastic and even when I first shot Greg, um, I actually didn't use that interview in the documentary. I ended up reshooting him because um, I had developed different questions I wanted to go with. But um, early in Greg's involvement, I didn't tell Mike about it. I just went ahead and did it. Sure. But then after I told Mike, hey, by the way, I got Greg involved, that's when I started to ask Mike, hey, is there any, any chance you and Greg can, you know, not reconcile, but at least get together for the last scene of my documentary and it took some it it took some persistence in having Mike agree to it but I think Mike finally came to terms with you know he is so important in my story and especially the story of the ticket that you know let's just let's just do it well and I also think um Mike is a good storyteller and so I think by in his gut he knew this is a good way to end this story. Yeah. And I think he, Mike probably wanted to make sure that it was something that I could pull off, you know, because this is the first sign of any type of reconciliation between the two guys in 13 years. And so as I started to shoot interviews and piece this thing together and I'd show Mike bits of bits and pieces here and there, I think he became more confident with my ability to tell his story. And I think that's when he said, you know, okay, I think that this will work with, with me and Greg meeting together at the end. And he and I, Mike didn't want any creative control over anything. And as a docu, if I'm going to be a doc documentarian, I'm not going to give creative control to my subject because I don't think that's right. But I did, I did tell Mike, I, I told him that I would run the last part of it through him for approval because I didn't want him to feel like the, that last scene was misleading to anybody. Right. And, you know, we pretty much were on the same page as far as the vision we had for it. And we collaborated on, on that to get it done. And I mean, Greg was Greg was awesome. He showed up and he wasn't joking around or anything. I mean, it was pretty mm-hmm. much just business. Yeah. And, you know, because I, I was thinking of this summer or, or this. Yeah, not the summer, I guess. Yeah, the spring and summer, you know, where Ken Burns was kind of a little bit. um critical of the Michael Jordan documentary because, you know, from his perspective, you shouldn't have the subject, you know, be involved with it. And and I I appreciate your, you finding that balance, right? Like I've got to tell my story, but I also, I don't want to misrepresent something that's so important to so many people. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with Burns on that part was Michael Jordan looked like a saint in that documentary. And for anyone that has access to the internet, they can do some of their own research and find out that, yeah, Michael Jordan is a legend and he's the greatest basketball player ever. But, you know, from what I've read, he got people fired. He got people blacklisted from the NBA and he was very, very hard on his teammates. And so was Kobe, but you know, it wasn't, he wasn't a saint in, in his gambling and, in some of his extracurricular activities, but none of that was really talked about in the documentary because Michael Jordan doesn't probably want to revisit those dark moments of his past. But it, yeah, I agree with Burns on that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When, as you're looking back, um, 
what surprised you about doing this? What, what, what had, did you, did you, I guess, what surprised you about the process? And as a follow-up question, what, what did you learn about yourself during this? Hmm. I guess what surprised me was just the, how natural it was for me to, to do it and not really come across something that I felt I couldn't overcome. Okay. Um, and maybe it was just the subject I had was very, very easy to work with. Um, but I, I guess I was surprised that Reiner was as open to me in giving me complete access um, because, yeah, he's a public figure, but he's also pretty guarded. Um, he's a little intimidating, but <laughs> yeah. he kind of gave me free reign and free access into anything I wanted to ask him or have him discuss. He did it. So that was surprising um, that he was as open. And then also surprising were the people that agreed to talk with me on camera about it and how open and honest they were. You know, Dale Hansen didn't hold back on his thoughts about having a radio station cover sports 24 hours. He didn't think that would work. Um, Galloway was pretty open and honest on his opinions on the ticket and, you know, his relationship yeah. with Grego. That was surprising. And then what was the other question I forgot? <laughs> well, did you learn anything about yourself doing this process? Um, I guess just to be confident in what you know you can do. I mean, I, okay. I guess I lost, I lost that vision last summer when Mike Reiner said, yeah, let's, let's do the documentary. And I was like, okay, well then I got scared and dropped the ball. Yeah. And when I, finally in my head said this is something I'm going to do and this is something I know I can do I did it so I guess my ability not only to start it and take those first steps but to do it to completion um, that was not surprising but it was something I learned that you know it's just it's a whole life skill it's a whole lifetime of skills and talents that you put into a project and I knew they were always there, but I guess for some time I, I doubted them and I, I shouldn't have, but. Okay. Um, so what's next? <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I have a couple ideas. One is actually a music based documentary, which I need, I need cooperation from people and network. So I haven't gotten the okay on that one yet. And okay. another one is sports related, which gosh, these answers for you are so boring, so I can't really talk about them. No, but. no, 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 I understand. So you, you have things in the hopper. I understand that. Yeah, fingers crossed. It's, it's all about who you can get to talk to you on camera about things, and especially right. if, if the documentary has to have some type of conflict and hopefully a resolution, but the ones I'm thinking of, there's a lot of conflict and drama involved in them, so I okay. just have to, get, I have to get the people to want to talk to me, so it, mm -hmm. it'll be an uphill battle. So what's next for the film? Uh, I know it's available and we will, um, I, I'm going to include the link in the show notes, but go ahead and tell people where to find it. Yeah, the documentary can be found at the www.theoldgraywolf.com and it's pretty much on Vimeo on demand. So if you go to theoldgraywolf.com, it'll uh, link you straight to the place where you can rent it. So that's kind of where it's at now. It's on the internet. <laughs> if the pandemic had not happened, uh, would you have tried to do some of the festivals? Um, you know what? I get asked that a lot. I never really thought to enter it in any type of festival, but maybe I should. Okay. But it's something I can definitely look into, but it's not something that when I set out on doing it that I think it would really I, I didn't guess I guess I didn't think it would be as well received as it was okay but I should have known better because Reiner draws audiences no matter where he goes but um I, I do need to look into festivals I have not yet though because uh, so do you so I'm going to put this in my terms right when I started this podcast five years ago um I said you know if if I'm playing to an audience of one, me. If I think at the end, uh, I've enjoyed talking to the person I'm talking to and, and I, I've, I've been able to share a little bit of their passion and why they care about not just Bruce, but other musicians, I've had people all over, then I feel like I've done a good job. 
So you kind of, what, what is success for you in this film? I think I've already obtained that. It's just the approval from Reiner, his fans, um, fans of the ticket. Yeah. Just telling a story that, you know, people, people enjoyed, whether it's a hundred people. I think I had like 300 people. I think I had 450 people there over the two nights. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a success in its own. You know, Mike's daughter was there for the premiere and, and just seeing, Mike be able to reconnect with people he hadn't seen in years. Um, in particular, him and him and Grego. Sure. You know, that was something that, you know, they're not getting any younger. Mike is 70, Greg is 60 and yeah. God forbid something happened to them. They may right. not have ever had that opportunity to, you know, have some type of close closure, I guess. I think the film, hopefully added some closure for people that like you mentioned were hardcore P1s and massive listeners and fans of the hardline in particular. Yeah. When, when Greg left, there was probably a great void in their life because the band broke up and the band will probably never get back together. But if I could offer any type of closure or comfort for people that admired Mike and admired Greg to see them back together again, I think I, I did a pretty good job at that. I, I absolutely agree. Um, so this is a curveball, but um, obviously this is fast, must, must watch, you know, mandatory viewing if you are a fan of the ticket or you grew up in DFW. Um, what's your pitch to someone that's, you know, Philadelphia or New York or, you know, um, Las a Vegas or Los Angeles? What, 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 I have my thoughts, but I wanted to hear what your thoughts are. It's, it's a story that you could, you don't have to be a fan or have ever even heard of Mike Reiner or the ticket to find some type of interest in it. I mean, it's a story about a, a guy who never could find his footing in, in his space and, he was kind of an awkward little kid and grew up and had no radio training whatsoever other than listening to his transistor radio growing up. And he built an empire and he did it. Um, now there were other people that helped him get there. I mean, you have to acquire the money, but as far as putting together the right guys to go onto the radio and it's lasted 26 years, they've won three Marconi awards for best sports station in the country. Um, it's a story of perseverance and, it has all the elements you want to see. There's conflict, there's tension, there's a breakup or a divorce, if you will. And there's a, a little bit of a resolution at the end. You know, they come back together and it lets you know that, <laughs> you know, no matter what, no matter how hard a relationship strain, it's never too late for people to kind of let the past go and move forward. And I think that's kind of the theme of the story is uh, working hard, believing in your talents, getting stuff done and, you know, forgiveness, forgiving people that might have done something wrong and just forgiving them and moving on. I, I will admit that there may have been a few tears in the eyes in the final scene. Um, I would tell my listeners that um, it, is this, it is a fascinating behind-the-scenes look of of, of a radio station that ends up being bigger than you ever thought it would be. Um, the, if you look at the ticket, um, its influence on talk radio, especially sports talk radio is massive. And it all started with just a few knuckleheads wanting to talk sports and doing these things. And it's, so it's fascinating. I also think it's a funny film. There is a lot of humor in it, and you you do a nice job of balancing the humor with the story, um, and so I, I just loved it. I thought it was just a great little bit of an hour. I would have loved it to be longer, uh, but that's because I'm a Springsteen fan, and I'm used to three-and-a-half-hour shows, right? So, like, I'm like, more, more, more. I, I think you, you cut it perfectly. I'm just saying I, I ended it wanting more. Well, I guess that's a good thing because if you end a film and you wish it ended an hour before, then you probably did yes, do exactly, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, Crystal, I always like to ask this: What have I not asked you that I should have? 
Oh, goodness. I think you're a professional, Jesse. I think you've covered <laughs> everything. <laughs> um, I tell this story, um, and I, because, and I, they, they talked about this, like, they just did an article about the show, but um, I had a guy on the show, Crystal, and we, we ended the interview. It was a nice interview. We had a good time, and so I, you know, I hit, I stopped the recorder, and we're visiting, and and I said, oh, did you have a good time? He said, oh, I had a great time. He said, hey, the next time I'm on, I should tell you about I, the time I got drunk with the E Street Band. Like, what? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> always, always leave the camera rolling. Yes, exactly. So I was like, what? So, um, well, that's good. Um, all right. So before I have to let you go, uh, it is tradition with me. Um, the uh, Sideshow Bob said that this is my version of the Inside Actors Studio. You know, the questions he used to ask. Um, so the Mary question. So for those of you who may not listen to this podcast, because you definitely lo uh, logged in because you wanted to hear Crystal, uh, Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher from the Philadelphia area. And every year, his seniors they take two days out in their honors English class and they take the Bruce Springsteen song Thunder Road and they break it down as a poem. They go through all the lyrics, they look at all the imagery, they talk about, um, they compare it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. And at the end of the two days, um, they ask the question, does Mary get the, in the car at the end of the song? So Crystal, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car? Okay, is there a right or wrong answer to there this? There is not a right or wrong answer. Okay, because you remember I, in high school the princess and or the tiger or the lady or the tiger. Do you remember that short story? Um, no. Okay, uh, shortened your cat, right? The cat is both alive and dead inside the box. Think of this as Mary's Schrodinger. Um, I, I, give me your answer, and then I'll give you a little more background. Okay, well, I had to, I'm familiar with the song, but not, not greatly familiar, but right. I went back and read the lyrics, and um, did he say you're beautiful, but you're not beautiful in it? He says, and this is the reason my wife hates the song, is she just walked in near the next room, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. <laughs> well, I would not have gotten in the car if someone said that to me, so, <laughs> but, but um, <laughs> I guess I'm an optimist, so I'll say, yeah, she got into the car. Okay, uh, so about 60-40, say yes, 60% say yes, 40% say no. Uh, a fair amount of my female listeners absolutely say no. He, he said, I wasn't a beauty, F him, I'm going to find someone who is a beauty, who thinks I am a beauty. Uh, so um, there is no right or wrong answer, I just, I think it's a good question to ask. Yeah, I think she got in the car. She This was before the time of Uber and Lyft, so she probably just needed to hitch a ride, so she probably just got in. I love that answer. I love that answer. Uh, Crystal, this was a blast. I am so happy. You should be so proud of the film. Uh, I hope you just continued success, and uh, whatever you're going to do next, I know you're going to be amazing at it. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. It was a blast, and now you've inspired me to go re um re-listen to some springsteen music because he's admittingly he's not on the top of my playlist but i will do that for you because oh I very I nice to, i need to listen to more bruce springsteen there the, bruce will make your life better um the uh, so um if someone wants to reach you uh how can they um they can i think on the website the oldgraywolf.com www.theoldgraywolf.com. Okay. You can email me off that website, um, or I'm on Twitter at Crystal DFW. Crystal is C R Y S T A L DFW, like Dallas Fort Worth. Very nice. Uh, well, I I hope you stay safe during this crazy time. Um, please please take care of yourself. Um, you thank you again for such a wonderful film and thank you for joining me listeners you stay safe remember to social distance wash your hands and as Bruce said wear an effing mask so <laughs> hey you said we couldn't cuss on this podcast <laughs> yes I know uh, so listeners thank you and we'll talk to you soon goodbye this podcast would not be possible without the support of my wonderful patrons 
I want to say thank you to Mary Thomas, Terry Smith, Dale Hosek, Elizabeth Brunson, Stephen Malio, Anna Lynn, Steve Rogers, Holly McMillian, and Chris Bloom. All of you are wonderful people. I appreciate you so much, and thank you for supporting the podcast. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. Set Listing Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.